first time this morning. My name's Jamie, by the way. Um, I am the guy who most weeks gets the privilege, the opportunity to open up the scriptures as we gather in this place. If you are new, uh, we are currently on the front end of a new sermon series, so you come in at the right time. Sermon series is going to carry us all the way to the end of November, just in time for the season of Advent, a series entitled, as you can see on the screen behind me, The Way of the King, Study of the Sermon on the Mount, the lengthiest section of uninterrupted red-letter text in all of the Bible, taking up three whole chapters of, of Matthew's gospel account. Matthew, as, as we've talked about for weeks now, in those first four chapters leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, has gone to great lengths to show us that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets from the Messianic line of David, a son of Abraham who will bring God's blessing to the nations, the king having come to bring salvation, taking back his world from us in establishing his reign over this broken humanity that we're a part of. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 4.23, is the king himself proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. Jesus begins, going back a couple weeks ago, this greatest sermon ever preached with a pronouncement of blessings, what we know many of us as the Beatitudes, describing the beauty of what it is to be a citizen of his good kingdom. This collection of, of blessings that you could say reverse the, the standards and values of the world, evidencing the standards and values of this countercultural kingdom of heaven. A kingdom so countercultural that Jesus says that those who buy in are sure to experience persecution, going back to chapter 5, uh, verses 10 through 12, simply for living in accordance with our citizenship under the reign of, of heaven's king. Seemingly insignificant countercultural people, poor in spirit, the meek, those who mourn, radically impacting the world around them for the glory of God, Jesus says. Which he helps to make sense of, going back to last week, through these word pictures that we talked about, salt and light. We, we wouldn't expect things like, like that that are seemingly so insignificant and small to impact the world. For salt to impact the earth or something so seemingly small and insignificant as a lamp to illumine all in the, in the house to use Jesus' words. And yet, Jesus declares that, that God uses the seemingly small and insignificant to bring healing and hope to a world completely ravaged by the effects of the fall. And to reveal something of the contrasting kingdom of this world for what it is. In, in the process of it all, this kingdom of darkness and decay, going back to last week, that will prove its citizenship to have given their lives to a fool's errand, Jesus says, when all is said and done. This morning, Jesus is going to make further sense of what it means to, to come under the reign of his kingship. And he's going to do so by teaching on his relationship to the Old Testament including the, the terms of the Jewish covenantal law by which Israel related to her God. The king has arrived in Jesus Christ. He's proclaimed that to be true, the inauguration of his kingdom. And he's come with this message that stands in perfect harmony with the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures, and yet at the same time stands in complete disharmony with the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, as we'll see. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew 5. We'll be in verses 17 through 20 this morning. Some of the most complicated verses in all of the, the gospel accounts, as many commentators and scholars would say. And so we need to pray. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can use one of those Bibles. You can have that Bible if you don't own a Bible or have a translation that's a little bit more difficult to track with. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll dive in because we got a little ground to cover this morning. God, I feel completely <clears throat> inadequate this morning 
Because as I think we'll all see momentarily, the idea that we could tease out the fullness of the implications of what Jesus says in these four verses in a matter of 30 to 45 minutes is, is just um, completely impossible. And so in some sense, we're going to get a taste, just a taste. And yet that taste is dripping with the sweetness of a honeycomb, as I think we'll see moments from now. This idea, Jesus, that you've come to fulfill the law and the prophets and all the implications of that and the hope that we find in you. I pray that our hearts would be awakened, that they would be stirred, that we would find ourselves bending our knee in greater glad submission to our King in light of your grace evidenced in the cross and empty tomb. Holy Spirit, would you move? Would you stir? Would you work in this room in the moments to come in my own heart? I pray that you would give me a feeling sense of the very things that I preach. I pray that this room would have a feeling sense of of the things that we're talking about, that that we wouldn't walk away better understanding a handful of verses um, in terms of of mental ascent, but, but rather that these truths would work their way deep down into the recesses of our being so that we might find our hearts all the more transformed that we might be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, the Son. It's in his name I pray, amen. <clears throat> so if you, if you fast forward to the end of Matthew chapter seven, Jesus has just finished up the Sermon on the Mount and, and the response of the crowds, if you read chapter seven, verses 28 and 29, this is what you get. And when Jesus finished Uh, These sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. There's this already existing authority amidst the cultural backdrop of Matthew's gospel account, namely the teachers of the law. And, And here comes Jesus onto the scene speaking with an authority, not like the scribes. He's pronouncing these blessings on citizens of of his kingdom. And apparently there are some who uh, are questioning whether Jesus has come to overthrow the law, which is why Jesus says, verse 17 of chapter 5, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and Uh, or until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The law and the prophets, that's comprehensive Old Testament language. In Jesus's day, the scriptures, or at a bare minimum, the way most of our Bibles are laid out, the prophets would be those books that start with Isaiah and end with Malachi, the law being the first five books of the Bible, the, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Matthew's already gone to great lengths to help us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets on the one hand, showing us a number of Old Testament prophecies in the first few chapters of his gospel account that are fulfilled in the the birth and early life of Jesus. Those passages that we sit with, with around Christmas time often. The most wondrous being the virgin birth, the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. But it goes Beyond what Matthew's already said in the earliest chapters of his gospel account, we know that the prophets not only spoke of the birth and life of Jesus, but also the death and resurrection and even the second coming of Jesus. Evidence most clearly the death and resurrection in the suffering servant uh, passages in the book of Isaiah. We see the second coming in books like Malachi and other parts of Isaiah, uh, among other prophetic books of the Bible. And not just the prophecies, but also the people and the storylines that make up the prophets of the Old Testament, the writings of the prophets. 
So that Jesus is the greater Hosea, the prophet Hosea, the perfect embodiment of God's redeeming love and faithfulness. Jesus is the greater Jonah. He would say so himself. The prophet Jonah remained in the belly of the great fish for three days, while Jesus remained in the belly of the earth for three days before rising in victory over sin and death. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets in that he is the true prophet. The Old Testament prophets declared, thus says the Lord. Jesus came onto the scene declaring, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, I am the Lord. Jesus has, or excuse me, Matthew has also gone to to great lengths to help us see that Jesus is not only the, the fulfillment of the prophets, but also of the law, the Torah, at least in one sense. He's shown us that going back to week one of this series, that Jesus is the greater Moses, the author of the Torah, as well as one of its main characters, having come out of Egypt just like Moses, having passed through the waters, not of the Red Sea, but the Jordan River through baptism, having spent not 40 years, but 40 days in the wilderness, ascending a mountain just like Moses, but not to receive the law, but rather to expound it. The one who would bring about, just like Moses, the liberation of his people, not from Egypt, but the far greater shackles of sin and death. That's just, that's just one of the many examples of how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Torah. There are many more not mentioned in the earliest chapters of Matthew's gospel account. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made in Genesis 3.15, found in the Torah. The offspring of Eve who would come and heroically crush the serpent Satan's head. He's the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 22, 18, also found in the Torah. The offspring of Abraham who would, uh, in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He's the greater Adam, the last Adam, as Paul makes clear in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. In Genesis, we're told that Adam failed his test in the Garden of Eden and rebelled against God. And yet we're told in the Gospels that Jesus passed his test in his Garden of Gethsemane and obeyed God. Jesus is the greater Isaac, story of Isaac found in the Torah as well. Isaac, Abraham's one and only son, carried the wood on his back up, up the hill to the altar where he would be sacrificed. And yet at the last minute, God provided a ram in a thicket as a substitute so that Isaac might live. Jesus, the one and only son, not of Abraham, but of God, carried the wood on his back, the wood of the cross up the hill of Golgotha to the place where he would be sacrificed And yet God didn't provide a substitute, but rather Jesus is our substitute, bearing our sins, dying in our place so that we might bear his righteousness and live. Jesus is the greater Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who sold him and betrayed him and uses his power to save them. Just a few examples in the Torah of people who foreshadow the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then there are the events and institutions found in the Torah so that Jesus is the true Passover lamb, innocent without blemish or spot, slain so that the angel of death might pass over you and me. He's the true priest. He's the fulfillment of the sacrificial system as the author of Hebrews tells us. He's the true tabernacle. He's the true bread having come from heaven and on and on and on we could go. But what about the law in the sense of the commandments of God? Because after all, that's where Jesus is going to go as we continue to work through this morning's passage. When we think, of, when we think law, we, we have to think in terms of a Jewish backdrop. The first five books of the Bible, including their more than 600 commands and 2,000 pieces of legislation, God's word and God's will for his covenant people, you might say, bringing them under the reign of his kingship, showing them how to live under his reign. When Jesus shows up on the scene, 
He does so offering God's kingdom to all the wrong people, does he not? Tax collectors and prostitutes, those not remotely living in accordance with God's will. Not only that, he does things like pluck heads of grain with his disciples on the Sabbath, causing a ruckus among those familiar with the law. So that this question emerges, one that Jesus uh, has a feeling sense that he needs to answer. Where might citizens of, of Jesus's kingdom go to find God's will? Do they go to the scriptures? Do they go to the words of Jesus? Do they go to both? And if both, how do the two relate to each other? Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In order to, to make sense of what Jesus is saying here, I think we have to remember the greater story of redemption that finds its fulfillment in him. Going back to the, the earliest chapters of the Bible, as the story goes, God calls Abraham and promises to make Abraham into a nation that will bring blessing to all the other nations. Abraham's descendants, we know, increase in number and end up enslaved in Egypt for the better part of 400 years. God rescues his people in what's known as the story of the Exodus, leading his people out of Egypt through the desert to the foot of Mount Sinai, where God declares that he's gonna make this liberated people his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, showing God's character to all the nations of the earth, if only they will obey his voice and keep his covenant. What are the terms of that covenant? The covenant stipulations, the law of Moses. God is establishing them as a kingdom, one that will show God's character to all the nations of the earth as they live under his reign in accordance with his law. How does that go for Israel? Those of us familiar with the story, we know it does not go well, right? As the story goes, Israel, like Adam in the garden, fails to live in glad submission to God, which pretty much sums up the next roughly 600 years of Israel's history, as many of them end up in Babylonian exile when all is said and done. What does God do? Does he walk away from his promises? Listen to the, the words of the prophet Jeremiah proclaimed to Israel in the midst of the Babylonian exile. Very famous passage, Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Israel, as you read the Old Testament, we know this to be true. They failed to keep up their end of the bargain, right? God's not the problem. God's covenants are not the problem. Covenant-breaking human beings are the problem. The old covenant couldn't make good on its promises because of the covenant-breaking nature of human hearts. Which is why it's really good news that Jeremiah 31 goes on to say, for this is the covenant, God says, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. God promises to, to write his law on human hearts, embedding his will deep within the hearts of his people. Clearly in the context of a relationship with God, right? I will be their God and they shall be my people. Obedience will no longer be an obligation, but a joy. No longer a duty, but a delight. How in the world, you might ask, is God gonna do such a thing? Listen to how 
Jeremiah 31, that section of that chapter of that book of the Bible ends. All of these things will be true for, here's why, here's how, for, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God declares he's gonna embed his will deep within the hearts of his people, people like you and me, in such a way that glad submission is just that, a joy. And the way he's gonna do it is through this great act of forgiveness. Coming back to this morning's passage, Jesus has come in order to establish for himself a Jeremiah 31 people, a new covenant people established on the basis of the blood that he would go on to pour out at Mount Calvary. God's great act of forgiveness. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. He came to fulfill it in one sense by keeping all of its commands, fulfilling all righteousness. So that verse 18 is not only a declaration that the law is still an expression of God's will down to the smallest stroke of the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. As Jesus says elsewhere, John 10, 35, scripture cannot be broken but it's also a declaration that Jesus' perfect record of righteous obedience given to us, reckoned to us by faith, it's an obedience down to the smallest stroke of the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Unbelievable. So that, Hebrews 4.15 would say, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 Peter 2.22 he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews 7.26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He's the, he's the lamb without blemish or spot, whose righteousness is credited to sinners like you and me by faith. Which brings us to another aspect of Jesus' fulfillment of the law, he came to fulfill the law by satisfying its demands and dying in our place, not just living the life we couldn't live, the spotless, sinless lamb sacrificed on behalf of sinners. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture, Colossians 2.14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, all of them, all of them, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. There's your law language. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It is finished. Behold the Lamb of God, John says, who takes away the sin of the world, fulfilling the law by dying on the cross, forever satisfying the law's demands against those who would turn to him in faith, so that in Christ, the fullness of mercy and forgiveness might be yours and mine. It's unbelievable grace, right? It's the kind of grace that just might compel joyful obedience. Which brings us to another aspect of Jesus' fulfillment of the law, perhaps one that we don't think about often. Jesus came to fulfill the law by writing it on our hearts so that we might fulfill it as we walk by the Spirit. Romans 8, verses 3 and 4 say it this way. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In other words, Jesus fulfills the law himself and he fulfills it in us. 
God embedding his will deep within the hearts of his Jeremiah 31 people. If you're a Christian, that's you. A royal priesthood, Peter would go on to say. A holy nation, that same kind of Old Testament language. A people for his own possession. Showing God's character to all the nations of the earth as we live under his reign in response to his everlasting forgiveness. Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 5 it's in complete harmony with the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures. I'm not sure that there is a perfect illustration, but maybe one of the, the best ones that I've heard, you could pick it apart later, would be if you grew up learning an instrument when you were a kid and, and you had to begin with the most boring of assignments, which is learning all of your scales. Or maybe you remember that word arpeggio, like things that give you nightmares now when you go back to your childhood learning of an instrument. Um, but, but the reality is that when, when you learn to make music, when you learn to write songs, when, when you learn to put together chord progressions, it doesn't negate the scales or the arpeggios. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't declare those things to be problematic or troublesome. It, it just, it takes those things and then creates something beautiful, a song with it, something more robust, something, something that's birthed from, from within that goes deeper Jesus is doing something deeper here, as we're going to see in the weeks to come. He's, he's creating a song. He's establishing a song in the hearts of his people, the song of the kingdom of heaven. Until all is accomplished, when he returns, when he comes back to fulfill all the second coming aspects of the promise of God in the Old Testament scriptures, bringing eternal judgment upon his enemies that he might establish eternal peace for his people, the consummation of the kingdom of heaven under the eternal reign of heaven's king. A kingdom that belongs to, to who? Well, Jesus will go on to say in verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' teaching stands in perfect harmony with the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures, and yet at the same time, it stands in great disharmony with the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees, they were seen as models of virtue. The very word Pharisee itself means separatist, set apart, different. They had established this, this code of morals and regulations that went far beyond the scriptures, more rigid than the law of Moses, referred to by I love this. Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible calls them the extra super holy people. So that most people believe that they would never be that righteous. And yet, going back to last week, Jesus would go on to declare, Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. You see what Jesus is doing there? We're going to see it in the weeks to come. It's not to say that murder isn't the focus when he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and he gets into the anger of the human heart. It's to say that when we get deep within and we deal with the anger, the anger piece of it, the murder piece is dealt with as well. That when you Look to the inside, the outside also might be made clean. 
He goes on to say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He says things externally appear to be in order, but on the inside is death and decay, so that your hearts are just as sinful and unacceptable to God as anyone else. Paradigm charts, but no fluency. Scales, but no song. Coming back to this morning's passage, it's, it's kind of amazing to think that in one sentence, Jesus declares the scribes and Pharisees' righteousness to be lacking while at the same time holding out hope that the publican, the sinner, the tax collector might know a righteousness that they never thought possible. Kent Hughes says in his commentary, The Pharisees' righteousness was not so great. It was merely external. It focused on the ceremonial. Its man-made rules actually were unconscious attempts to reduce the demands of the law and make it manageable. Those rules insulated them, he says, from the law's piercing heart demands. These men were also self-satisfied. A Pharisee could stand on a corner, look at a publican, and say, I thank God I am not like that man. Jesus he says, was demanding a deeper obedience. The Pharisees saw obedience quantitatively, obedience to myriad little laws, but Jesus saw it qualitatively. The righteousness that Christ demands is supremely radical. It is immeasurably higher than the rabbi's concept of righteousness. Jesus closes this whole section, he says, by saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What is Jesus saying? He's not talking about the pharisaical life on steroids. He's talking about a deep transformation of the heart. As strange as it might seem at first glance, these words flowing from Jesus' lips, they're brimming with grace because he's declaring in some sense that we can't do it. He's revealing to us to go back to the very beginning of his sermon, our spiritual bankruptcy before God. There is none righteous, no, not one, Paul would go on to say in his letter to the Romans. In the words of one scholar, hell is full of human righteousness. Which takes us right back to those words. Matthew 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who realize they can't broker a deal with God. Those who realize that they can't merit God's acceptance and favor those who cry out like the publican in Jesus' parable, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So that I would ask this morning, is that the cry of your heart? Or are you devoting your life to the pursuit of something you'll never obtain? Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary on this passage, says, the Pharisees accused Jesus of abolishing the law, but in fact, they were the ones who were abolishing it. Their traditional interpretations of the law weakened its power to search the motives of men's hearts. It was only in the exposition of Jesus that the real power of God's law could be felt. Jesus did not weaken the law. On the contrary, he let it out of the cage in which the Pharisees had imprisoned it, allowing it to pounce on our secret thoughts and motives and tear to pieces our bland assumption that we are able to keep it in our own strength. Who are the Jeremiah 31 people that Jesus has come to establish? 
It's a people that are so astonished that Jesus has moved toward them by his grace, gifting them his perfect righteousness, a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. A people who are so astonished that Jesus continues to move toward them by his grace as he plants flags of kingship deeper and deeper in their hearts. So that I would say this, if, if we think ourselves impressive, looking down our noses at publicans, at sinners, and tax collectors, we've missed it. We have little to offer the church. If we find ourselves astonished that God would move toward us by his grace, if that's our posture, then we, we can be leveraged for the glory of God in amazing ways. Salt and light, the seemingly small and insignificant leverage for the eternal glory and kingdom of God. I guess I would ask this morning, coming back to the earliest weeks of this series, what, what's your posture toward the king as it pertains to obedience? Is there an, an element of glad submission that, that, that's infused in it all? Because that's the, the heartbeat of the kingdom of heaven, the Jeremiah 31 people. Glad submission to the king is birthed out of an astonishment of his grace, this grace that would move towards spiritually impoverished publicans like you and me. And so I pray, if you're not a Christian, that, that you would see that this kind of righteousness that Jesus is calling you to can't be accomplished on your own. You can't do it. You're desperate for Jesus to, to do it on your behalf. And that for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that we wouldn't lose the essence of the wonder of God's grace and mercy toward us. This great act of forgiveness enacted in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ so that we would continue and never stop marveling at, at the, the astonishing grace of God and that that would move us to be a people that, that we could say that obedience and, and the phrase glad submission go hand in hand for us.